Hear the word of God from the Gospel of Matthew, the, cha- the second chapter, verses 13 through 23. This reading comes from the New Revised Standard Version. Now, after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night, and went to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated, and he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who were seeking the child's life are dead. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And after being warned in a dream, he went away to the district of Galilee. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth, so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. The word of God for the world. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning and Merry Christmas. Let's pray together. Spirit of the living God, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. But most of all, God, take our hearts and set them on fire. Amen. So we find ourselves in the middle of the Christmas season, and we expect that we will return to the happy, idyllic, joy-filled, anticipatory words of Scripture that describe the Christ child. But where does Scripture lead us this morning? Not to the happy, idyllic part of the Christmas story, but into the dark, into the violence into the world into which Jesus was born. The lectionary never lets us rest very long in the happy part of Christmas. The last time I preached here at Hyde Park was eight years ago this weekend. I was a first-year seminary student, and that time the lectionary assigned a text about Jesus separating people as a shepherd separates sheep and goats, who was a true follower of Jesus and who was just pretending It was an easy text for a first-year seminarian. But it was a good lesson for me about how the church views Christmas. 
We get the warm and fuzzy story on Christmas Eve, and then we're right back to the messiness of the middle, to the reality of how it is that we welcome the infant king into our lives, how it is that we allow Jesus to become Lord and Messiah, to become master and friend. It's a re-entrance to the messiness of what Eugene Peterson calls the long obedience in the same direction. In fact, the Gospels themselves compress the Christmas story. Here in Matthew's Gospel, within 18 verses, we move from the telling of the Magi's arrival and their gifts of gold to terror and a midnight flight to Egypt. Now, Matthew is, he's interesting. The, the version of the Jesus story that he gives us is less concerned with how things happen and more concerned with what the happenings mean. And so, in his version of the Christmas story, we, we start with a genealogy. Here's what it means, he tells us, that Jesus is born of Mary and of Joseph. Look, do you see? This Jesus is connected to King David. And then we hear that Joseph has a dream telling him not to worry, although if an angel shows up and tells you not to worry, it seems like you really do have something to worry about. And then Jesus is born. But there's no guest rooms or innkeepers or shepherds singing glory in the fields here in Matthew's gospel. Jesus just arrives, the only fanfare, a bright, sky, a bright star in the night sky. Chapter 2 of Matthew's Gospel begins with the wise men's arrival, a presentation of gifts. Not practical gifts for a baby, but gifts of value, and gifts that already point towards what it means that Jesus is born. Gifts that are often used at burial to prepare bodies. Even now, even here at the beginning, Matthew wants to connect Jesus' birth to his resurrection to his death and his resurrection. And then we enter into today's appointed reading. Matthew jumps us right here into this dark story where there is fear and slaughter, where there are angry rulers and political upheaval, where there are displaced people and families torn apart by violence. It's not really the story we want to hear. But it's the reality in which Jesus' people and our people live. It's not a far-fetched story at all. It's a story written on every news website and splashed across the headlines of every morning newspaper. It's our story. There's a great line in a Christmas movie called Love Actually that goes, At Christmas, we tell the truth. Now, of course, in the movie, the truth-telling is centered around unrequited love and happily ever afters, but the statement itself is spot on. Matthew's gospel teaches us that at Christmas we tell the truth by naming the way the world is. One biblical scholar puts it this way, Matthew dares to see things as they are, and he dares to affirm that God is working. God is the principal actor here in Matthew's gospel. It's God who sets the star in the sky for the magi. It's God who sends the angels to warn of coming danger. 
It's God who hides the holy family in safety for the sake of all that is yet to come. And it is God who sends them home. It's tempting for us to want to live in the bookends of our stories, to live in the moments of great joy, in the stories of birth and new life, in the stories of perfect holiday memories. But it's not where Jesus spends the bulk of his ministry, nor is it where we spend the bulk of our lives. We live together with Jesus in the messy, scary middle. And we are invited to learn to tell the truth, to tell the truth of that messiness, to tell the truth about our fear and our brokenness, and to tell the truth that God is near, that God is working. As we heard the scripture read this morning, you may have noticed that three times there's an event, a dream, and a fulfillment of prophecy from the Hebrew scriptures. So let's look at each of those those moments. First, the Magi. We pick up in the middle of their story. These three wise men have seen a star in the night sky and have wandered miles and miles after the star to find the king of the Jews, so that they might pay him homage, so that they might publicly offer this king their respect and recognition. This is an act of of worship and an act of identifying the one to whom all gifts already belong. We might not regularly present Jesus with frankincense and myrrh, but as people called disciples, we are invited to give back to God what was God's to begin with. Our talents, our money, our time, our treasure. The Magi demonstrate for us what it is to live public lives of faith. They risk quite a lot to go to King Herod and ask after a new king. After all, Herod isn't just any ruler. He's a ruler with quite a large dose of insecurity. He had fought for three years to gain control of his kingdom, even killing a wife and a son because he was worried about treason and coups. But the Magi risk the asking, for the baby born king of the Jews is worth it, they decide. Jesus is worth the risk, worth the gift giving, worth the public display. So I wonder... Might we learn to tell the truth this Christmas? Is there some gift God is inviting you to give to King Jesus? Maybe some piece of your life you've been holding back. Perhaps the gift is costly and large. Or perhaps it is as simple as being more public with your faith in the Messiah. In my work at the hospital, I'm often called to go and visit patients who've been hospitalized for a long while. Several months ago, I met a patient I'll call Miss Jean. By the time I'd been asked to see her, she'd been hospitalized for over a month. She had a painful skin disease that was causing blisters, and they just wouldn't heal. Miss Jean was in her mid-60s, an African-American woman, and She had the kindest disposition I think I've ever encountered. 
But the first day I met her, I walked into her room. She was lying in her bed with the lights turned off and the TV on quietly. And she just looked sad. I introduced myself and she immediately guessed that her nurse had asked me to visit. She's worried about me, Miss Jean said. I can't shake the sadness today. So she even wrote me a note on my whiteboard. She pointed across the room, and sure enough, it said there, celebrate every victory. But Miss Jean said, it's awfully hard today to see any victories. We talked for a long time that first visit. She told me about her life outside of the hospital, about her family, her deep faith, her church community. She talked about all the places that she found joy and strength. She said to me, I think... What's so hard about the hospital is I can't do for myself. I love to do for others, to make people smile and to make them feel loved, like Jesus loves me. And without any prompting from me, it was like the lights went on in her eyes. She had remembered what gave her meaning and joy, serving God and God's people. And though it might look different, she could continue to use those gifts, even in the chaos and the messiness of her illness and hospitalization. Miss Jean was at Tampa General for more than 100 days. She had a few more bad days, but by and large, every time I went to see her, which was at least once a week and usually more because she became my favorite, she was busy making the staff smile and feel loved. The week that she was released from the hospital, she said to me, sometimes they ask me why I can smile the way I do. And I tell them it's because Jesus loves me and you. And I can still do God's work in the hospital by loving you. And that's a privilege. What gift do you have to share with King Jesus and his people this Christmas? What would it look like for you to tell the truth about what the Christ child means in your life? After the Magi have come and gone, God sends an angel in a dream to warn Joseph of what is to come. The family flees under the cover of night, but the families left behind in Bethlehem are brutally disrupted. Bethlehem would have been a small village, and so... It's likely that there were no more than 20 children killed in a village that size. But what an unimaginable loss. What an unimaginable wound. In yesterday's New York Times, there was an op-ed published written by a New Testament professor at Wheaton College named Esau Macaulay. Dr. Macaulay talks about this day in the Christian year where we remember the slaughter of the holy innocents. He writes this. The church calendar calls Christians and others to remember that we live in a world in which political leaders are willing to sacrifice the lives of the innocent on the altar of power. We're forced to recall that this is a world with families on the run, where the weeping of mothers is often not enough to win mercy for their children. More than anything... The story of the innocents calls upon us to consider the moral cost of the perpetual battle for power in which the poor tend to have the highest casualty rate. But how can such a bloody and sad tale do anything other than add to our despair? 
The Christmas story must be told in the context of suffering and death because that's the only way the story makes any sense. Where else can one speak about Christmas other than in a world in which racism, sexism, classism, materialism, and the devaluation of human life are commonplace? People are hurting, and the epicenter of that hurt remains the focus of God's concern. Christians believe that none of this suffering was in vain. The cries of the oppressed do not go forever unanswered. We believe that the children slaughtered by Herod were ushered into the presence of God. And the Christian tradition also affirms that Jesus' suffering served a purpose, that when the state ordered his death, God was at work. God was emptying death of its power, vanquishing evil, and opening the path towards forgiveness and reconciliation. The Christmas story must be told in the context of suffering and death because it's the only way the story makes any sense. I've been thinking a lot about what it looks like to tell the Christmas story not in the idyllic way, but in that messy, messy middle. This Advent, I came across a new carol by a woman named Liz Weiss. Liz writes that she was attending a 2018 conference to have a conversation about Christmas carols, about how they often don't give the most accurate depiction of the scene of God coming to earth. So she sat down with a group of the attendees, and they riffed off the melody of Away in a Manger, and they wrote new lyrics to the song. Away from the manger they ran for their lives, the crying boy Jesus, a son they must hide. A dream came to Joseph, they fled in the night, and they ran and they ran and they ran. No stars in the sky but the Spirit of God led down into Egypt from Herod to hide. No place for his parents, no country, no tribe. And they ran and they ran and they ran. Stay near me, Lord Jesus, when danger is nigh. Keep us from Herod's and all of their lies. I love the Lord Jesus, the refugee king. And we sing, and we sing, and we sing. The whole song is powerful, but I particularly love that line in the third verse. Keep us from Herod's and all of their lies. The Herod's of our own days are alive and well. But if God is inviting us to tell the truth at Christmas, I wonder how we might examine the lies we've been believing. Do we look towards the palace more frequently than towards the stable? Do we listen to the rulers and the Herods of the world more than we listen to the Lord Jesus, the refugee king? Can we stay long enough in that messy middle? to bear witness to the hurting and suffering among us so that we might also bear witness to God's saving power.
Some time passes in the gospel story. The Holy Family makes their way to Egypt and they settle there for a while until God sends another angelic dream. This time the dream seems to hold a happy promise, homecoming. Only the family makes it back to Israel to find things worse than before. Herod's son, Archelaus, is now ruling. Apparently he was so brutal that the Romans, who were not known for their compassion, later end up removing him from power. And so once more God directs Joseph, this time towards the sleepy backcountry and a small town called Nazareth. And for a third time, Matthew tells us, all of this, everything that's happening, all of it is because God is busy fulfilling the words of the Hebrew prophets. God has not forgotten the promises of old, nor has God forgotten the promises of today. And surely God will not forget the promises yet to come. So here's the last invitation to truth-telling from this morning's gospel. What is God promising in your future? God showed up with the Magi, with Joseph and Mary and the Christ child, and God shows up with us. God works through our gifts, be they large or small. God works through our triumphs and our tragedies. God works through them for the sake of salvation, not just for us, but for the sake of the whole world. The deepest joy we can declare at Christmas is this. Nothing, nothing can defeat God's promise of Emmanuel, God with us. Nothing can defeat that promise. Not violence, not disappointment, not hospitalization, not fear, not greed, not loneliness, not displacement. God is with us. God is with you. God is with our neighbor and with our enemy. God is with the people with whom we're the least concerned. And God is with the people whom we most love. God is with us. Will you help to tell that story, that truth, that joy? Will you tell it with your time, with your money, with your gifts, with your words, with your love, and with your life? The Christmas story begins with the birth of a child. But the Christmas story doesn't end until this child has grown up and preached God's mercy. Until this child has been crucified and died and risen again. And really, the Christmas story doesn't end until Jesus draws all of us into that same story. Raising us up to new life. Even amidst the very real challenges that face each of us here and now. The Christmas story matters because it tells us the truth. The sometimes difficult truth of unjust rulers and violence and private grief and personal pain and all the rest of the messiness of our human lives. 
But the Christmas story also tells us the always hopeful truth that God has not stood back at a distance, but in Jesus, God has joined God's own self to our story. And God is working, even now, even here, to grant us new life, that we might not just endure, but that we might flourish that we might experience resurrection joy and courage in our daily lives, and that we might share this hope with all the world. So let's tell that truth at Christmas and all through the year. Let's pray together. Holy and gracious God, you who are Emmanuel, God with us, Teach us. Give us the courage to tell the truth, to tell the story, your story. God, thank you that nothing can derail the promise of God, our Emmanuel. Bring us to new life, we pray, beginning here, even now, even today, in this messy middle. Thank you, God, that you never leave us, but that you are at work in and through us and our lives. Let us be truth-tellers in the year that is to come. We pray this in the name of Lord Jesus, who is the refugee king. Amen.